0: All right, everybody. Welcome to today's Seven Figures Club podcast. Today's guest is Warren. And I want to say your name right. It's Warren Coglin, correct? That's right. Warren is a business coach to not just entrepreneurs, but ethical entrepreneurs. He's a serial entrepreneur himself. He's a father. And not only is that, but he's actually been coaching entrepreneurs to success and freedom since 2002. He's also a recovering lawyer. I like that about him. My dad's an attorney a serial entrepreneur, a former college professor, as well as an actor. We're gonna have to find out about his acting gigs, and he's a theater director. That wide array of experience has given him the ability to have an amazing perspective on leadership, success, effectiveness, and fulfillment. Welcome, Warren, to the show.
1: Thanks very much. Great to be here, Lou.
0: There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S. and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven-figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. All right. Well, let's kind of start at the beginning, Warren, before you jumped into entrepreneurship and you were, you know, at some point an attorney, went to law school. Where did you uh, grow up? What was childhood like? And what do you think, you know, in those formative years led you to entrepreneurship or, or what, what were you like as, you know, a kid growing up?
1: <laughs> That's an interesting question. So actually, my story starts at birth because I was supposed to die. I was oh, given wow. 0% chance of survival. I was the second person to live through this weird congenital defect, And that actually is really relevant to this entrepreneurial journey, because when I found out about that, it kind of stirred something in me. Like I got this gift I wasn't supposed to have. And so what am I going to do with that? So I I looked around for how I could make a difference or how I could contribute. And that's why I've been in all these different environments. Right. In law school, I thought, well, maybe I'll go into politics and, you know, help society or, you know, the pursuit of justice and that kind of thing. Um, and then it was really, I found, you know, fighting over an existing pie isn't as much fun as making a pie. Uh, and so then I went into entrepreneurship and academia and theater was sort of, you know, the transformative power of art. And it was really entrepreneurship where I found that sweet spot, you know, because I, I believe entrepreneurship is actually one of the most powerful forces for positive social change. Entrepreneurs create, right? You create solutions, you create jobs, you create wealth, you create opportunity. Um, and so that's where it really hit. And you know, what kind of drove me for that growing up? I mean, I, I had a bunch of weird experiences, right? Like I, I lost my hair when I was 12 years old. It was another health thing back in 1975. And I had lots of support from people around me. My folks were great about it. My friends were great about it. And we moved a few times. And so I just, the, the whole set of experiences always just showed me that in the face of anything, there's always opportunity. And as long as you're proactive about being responsible for the outcomes that you're creating, you can produce sort of whatever you want. Um, And that just kept being kind of the lesson that I was getting in my life. You know, I wasn't supposed to live, but I did, you know, moved, lost my hair. That should make you shy, but I wasn't, Um, you know, and so it just, just all these things kept reinforcing for me that carving your own path is, is the way to go. And then, then, you know, I got some jobs and, Frankly, I was a crappy employee, not, you know, I did a fine job, but I just, I did not like being an employee. Um, And interestingly, theater helped a lot with that idea of understanding entrepreneurship because in, in theater, and I'll say this to entrepreneurs sometimes, and it's a little bit sphincter tightening for them. Here's what happens in theater. You get three blank walls and a script this thick and in seven weeks, you've got to design, install, construct, sets, lights, props, costumes, rehearse, find emotional truth, market, put butts in seats, and that curtain has to open at 7:59, 59 on a Thursday night with 100 percent predictability, and everybody involved their flakes. And I say that lovingly because I was the one. Um, And if a bunch of flakes can pull off something of that degree of complexity with that degree of predictability, why can't you, as an entrepreneur make fundamental changes in your business in 90 days?
0: Absolutely. So incredible story. So 0% chance to live and then going through adversity and difficulty, losing your hair at age 12, and but luckily having great supportive parents. What was your first experience into entrepreneurship where you realized, huh, maybe being an entrepreneur is actually the path I wanted to go? How did that happen? What was that first experience like?
1: <laughs> the first experience, like a lot of entrepreneurs, was incredibly painful. I actually left law to start a semi-professional sports team. Um, And I had the deal basically stolen from me. I had a corporate finance guy uh, working with me at the time. And it was my first entrepreneurial gig. And I went, what did I do wrong? And he said, I've been doing this for over a decade. He says, you did everything right. I've never seen a deal where people were so intent on kind of screwing the main idea of the deal. And so my first experience was actually really painful. But the team actually was created and at one point was the highest merchandising team in that particular league. And so what it did is it, it said to me, I, my idea was right. My marketing idea was right. My branding ideas were right. The, the marketing concepts, the, 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 the business model I put behind it was right. And so even though it was a loss, it to me validated that, oh, this is actually kind of cool. I think I'm, I, I've got some ability to actually make this happen. And so that, that's when I went into academia. I was like, oh my God, I left law to start this business, lost it, I've got nothing. So what am I going to do? So I, I I quickly, I don't know why I got this idea, but I wrote to this college and said, here, I'll, I'll do this course on uh, on marketing law. And they said, yeah, great idea. So I came in and I was the, the one of the last classes in a two-year program. And that funded me while I was going on to the next business, which was a consulting business in New Media. And that one kind of took off it grew we created what was called the canadian new media awards we had three or four businesses under that and it was like okay this is this is kind of cool so how long have you been practicing as an attorney when you decided to
0: you know take this chance take this risk and launch this semi-professional sports team you know
1: i've been practicing for six and a half years okay so quite a while and what uh what segment of law were you in I was in litigation, so I did civil litigation and administrative litigation. And it was really, I had this, it was a really wonderful firm that I worked for, like super highly ethical people, good quality, you know. And I had this case um, with my, you know, my principal, and it was, should be every litigator's dream. It was, we did historical research back to the 1700s. We were totally wearing the white hats. We kicked their butts all over the courtroom. Uh, We did like a million dollars in billings. And at the end of it, it was kind of like, me and i was sort of like you know if the best it can be is me then i'm probably in the wrong place so then
0: you get this idea what uh, sport are were you uh, tackling at that point to launch hockey. that to yeah. hockey okay yeah okay so it's a semi-professional hockey team and you're launching it and what was it that gave you you know the courage to take that risk because you're stepping away from Although it wasn't as satisfying as, as you felt like life could be, you're still taking some pretty big risks walking away from a significant, you know, a decent, really good paying job, I would imagine, and a yeah. well-established law firm. So what was that decision process like? And we have listeners out there who are in your position, the position you were in, and they're thinking, ah, do I, why do I take the leap? Where do I take the leap? How do I want I know I should, what was your decision process like?
1: So- I had uh, I had a friend who was involved in the industry and he'd validated for me that there was an appetite for this team um, and then I did I took my time I did a bunch of research like I, I interviewed a whole bunch of other owners uh, looked at their business models looked at geography found the right location um, and so before I left, I actually, I did a bunch of research. I actually had the VC involved. I had architects involved. Mm-hmm. So everything, I felt like all the, I'd done all the putting the ducks in the row. I just didn't. So that, that's what made, that was what gave me the comfort for it. And I was super excited about it. I thought it was just going to be really cool. And on the risk mitigation side, I was a single guy. I didn't have a lot of assets at the time. So, you know, if it went belly up, Oh, well, (laughs) you know, I just go get a job and do something else. Right. So the, the, like the downside risk wasn't super high. Yeah. Um, but the one, you know, the lesson when you say there's people who were there. So early on in this, um, endeavor, one of the people who I approached to help with the team did something that was a little slimy. And this is where this whole ethical thing really kind of came in. And there was a flag and I ignored the flag. You know, because I went, oh, you know, he just wants to do that. I rationalized around something that my spidey sense went, this isn't good. It's not right. Um, and if I'd, I, I should have paid attention to the spidey sense. And that's one of my, you know, do not get into business people with people who don't share your values. That's going to bite you on the backside almost 100% of the time.
0: Mm-hmm absolutely okay so as you're making that decision you did the research the r&d's there you've got essentially you know proof of concept by people who really know that hey there's a market for this and so everything's lined up there and then what really does it in is connecting up with you know strategic partners partners maybe who don't share the values so there's a lot of learning lessons there in in dealing with people who have your values and then you go on and now you're a professor and then what's the next project what what's the What's the next uh, step and, and the next business in uh, and entrepreneurship, and, and how does that idea come
1: So it was a new media consulting business, and it started as a promotional idea. Um, I had for, I mean, a really small tactical thing, but it was like an impact promotion idea using some new technology that was available. And I partnered with a guy, and we managed to get some funding because it was sort of a little experimental piece in the technology that made it a, an attractive piece um interestingly and it it was funny we another my, my my journey originally started with like two failures first was the hockey and then this one um i sat down with the vice president of marketing for one of the largest breweries in canada presented him with the idea and he said this is exactly what we're looking for and i was like i can't do any better than give somebody exactly what he's looking for And then he put it in the hands of the brand managers and it was the politics of a large organization. People had their own promotional ideas over the next year and it sort of withered on the vine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it didn't wind up going ahead. It was probably a three and a half million dollar deal if it had gone ahead. Um, And, but... Again, it was sort of like, okay, so we did something really cool that had some market validation, but we just didn't understand the sales. You know, Part of that is then how you actually sell into large organizations and what the understanding of that is. Yeah, that is. Um, and so my partner and I started doing some consulting. And then we partnered with some other guys who were doing some consulting, and we actually became one of the premier new media consulting firms uh, in at least Ontario, possibly Canada. Uh, and then we created the Canadian New Media Awards and we created a recruiting company specializing in the new media industry and you know that became pretty fun <laughs> absolutely so so how did you grow and scale
0: that and what were some of the challenges uh, that you came across
1: the so one of one of my partners was really tapped into government sources so we managed to get a lot of good government contracts we also one of my other partners was well established in the new media industry as sort of a new media expert. So we leveraged his brand. He had another sort of online business, so we leveraged his brand to, to start to market and sell. We hired a really, really good account manager whose job was basically to hang out at one of the top four banks in Canada. And like if he was in the office, we were like, what are you doing here? Um, and he wound up you know opening lots and lots of doors. Um, so the, the first number of years were like super exciting, you know, and growing. And uh, a lot of the success came through relationship development within the industry. A lot of reputation management, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then the big challenge happened when the dot bust occurred. Yeah. We were, again, really great lesson. We were very strategic and we looked at that, I don't know if you know, for some of your listeners, or if they're younger, they may not remember this, but there was this dot-boom era, where people were just doing deals based late on 90s. The, late yeah, 90s. Va- yeah. Vaporware stuff, right? And we were we were very conscious, we're not going to work for dot-com companies, like we work for Royal Bank of Canada, McGraw-Hill, um, Harlequin Enterprises, you know, like, just sort of big brands who were playing in the new media space. And so we, because we knew that 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 train was going to hit a wall with all the dot coms like we looked at the you know i was i was the luddite in the group i wasn't the techie guy i was sort of just a business analyst guy and i was like all these things people are pitching and raising money on there's there's nothing fundamental underneath it like that can't sustain itself um and that turned out to be true what we didn't anticipate was that the big brands when the dot bust hit would also put on the brakes Mm. Um, and so that, that was the biggest challenge probably we encountered was when the dot bust hit, um, everybody kind of froze and all budgets and all decision making got kind of frozen. And so from one of the, the great skills I learned during that period was cash flow management. You know, like we were for a period there, I was managing cash flow on a daily basis. And, you know, that was, that was super interesting. It was stressful as anything, oh, um, sure. but, but it worked, right? Like that kind of like really, really focused, who gets paid, who doesn't, how do we, we did relationships with our suppliers where we, instead of what happened at that time, again, there's another one of those ethical lessons and where there's some benefit from it, I think at that time, a lot of people were in the same boat and they started not paying their suppliers. And so suppliers were getting screwed. And like, it was a really, that it was called the dot bust for a reason. It was it was a painful yeah. period. But what we did is we said to our suppliers, we had a reputation of always paying on 30 days. And so we contacted them and said, we're going from 30 to 45. You will get paid on 45. And we paid everybody on 45. But we just had to extend that payment period out a little bit. But because they were getting screwed by a lot of other of their contractors, we when we had a job, our work got moved to the top because they knew. We were going to pay them on 45 days. We were good to our word. Um, and we communicated it to them, right? And we also communicated everything that was happening to the staff. We, we did almost open book, like we shared with everybody what was happening financially. We owned a recruiting company. And I called the president of the recruiting company and said, some of our, may peop- some of our people may want to look for work, so they may contact you. Do not tell me if they are contacting you. And I said to our staff. I know this is a tough period. Some of you may want to look for other work. Our recruiting company has been instructed to help you if you want to look for work and to not tell me if you do. I hope you tell me so that we can make plans, but I don't want you to feel any pressure so you don't have to. Mm -hmm. We didn't lose a single employee during that period. So how many of your competitors do you think did it differently where
0: they didn't communicate with the manufacturers? They didn't work out of deals. They didn't follow through.
1: Quite a few. And a lot of them got badly hurt. And I'm so on sure. the other end of it, there was actually a great opportunity to, you know, find some good people.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And that comes back to one of the core values that we've got here with our team. And that's to do what you say you're going to do. And I think too often that's not what people do. It's just it separates like 70, 80 percent of the business community don't make that. They don't follow through. They aren't, uh, you know, kept to their word. And when things change, they don't communicate. And so yeah. when the market changed with the dot bust happened, you guys kept those communication, uh, you know, uh, everything going forward. They, it was transparent, not only with your manufacturers. These are strategic partners. Like you can't do business without yeah. these guys, the right? Suppliers were necessary. Yeah. And the thing that I, that's so fascinating about your story is your first two forays into entrepreneurship, they didn't work out. And there's a big percentage of entrepreneurs that uh, start out and fail, and yet they continue to learn. And eventually, the good thing is Mark Cuban says, you only have to be right in business one time for it to pay off. But so many people give up. Why did you not give up? And what can people who have had
1: that initial failure in, in business entrepreneurship learn from your story? That it's the learning that matters. You know, when I, I sometimes, when I was teaching at the college, I would say to people... I use this as an example. Imagine right now you have two job opportunities. One is you can go work for this agency doing, you know, some design work and you'll get $75,000 a year. Or you can come from work for me as a business coach. I'll pay you $40,000 a year. But that wasn't what I was offering. I was using this as an analogy. But I said, you know, like, so, and you come to me with every single meeting I have with my clients where you're going to hear, every challenge of every CEO of every business on all these different industries, the advice I'm giving them to succeed, watching them implement it and see how it how it helps three years from now, which of those two jobs do you think you'll be further ahead in? The one with the opportunity to learn. Yeah. hundred percent. And so that's, you know, when I got, I got, you know, kicked in the teeth a couple of times starting because I was young and I was naive and there was some stuff I didn't know. and, each one of those things I took as a learning opportunity. I sat back afterwards and went, okay, what did I learn from that? What, you know, I went to that corporate finance guy. What did I do wrong? Like I wanted the feedback about where things went wrong. You know, when I pitched that thing to the, to the brewery, the, the beer company, it was like, okay, I gave the guy what he wanted, but that wasn't enough. So I did what I didn't do was I didn't help him navigate sort of the, the politics within a large organization. So that's something more I got to learn more about. And so and it, I think it's just, it's just that, right? Like you're, if you, if you assume you'll succeed before you have experience or knowledge, that's going to be luck, you know, which is great. Like you may have, you may, you may have fluke into a fantastic idea and have the right relationships. Brilliant. But, you know, Bill Gates once said, you know, success is a lousy teacher. And there's that old saying, you know, smooth, smooth waters make bad sailors. Um, You've got to have a little bit of a rough ride every now and again, if you're going to get there.
0: Absolutely. I think it's what Gary Vaynerchuk calls a wartime leader, and you are a wartime leader having gone through that. And so now you're building this uh, new media company. You guys make it through the dot-com bust. Now, how do you get to where you're at today, where you're, you're helping and serving entrepreneurs and, and business owners? You know, wh- what was that uh, process like uh, where you transitioned from building the new media company and working with these massive brands to now really supporting entrepreneurs and business owners and helping them grow
1: so the four of us in the in that were owners in the business we wound up having just sort of different directions that we wanted to go and so one of them he he and one of the senior guys just bought out the other the other partners the other three partners so we just sold our interest to go on to do different things um, and I was looking for the next thing to do and this was so this was back in 2001 2002 and I'd never heard of business coaching didn't even know it was a thing and I was sort of like okay what's my next thing gonna be and I was talking to some family and friends and a family friend in Calgary was a business coach and somebody said you should talk to Dawn she's doing this thing called business coaching I went what the hell is that (laughs) and I went I called her and looked into it and I went oh man that sounds awesome um and so I just looked into it more and there was a, an organization that was involved. and I again, I took the leap, you, know, paid a franchise fee and jumped in and um, the first while on that was a bit tricky. And then after a few years, I figured out a few things that I didn't know on the sales front. Um, and it was interesting. So as I was doing that, I was looking at, I was looking at business coaching and then I was looking at this training model. and this training company did a personality profile kind of thing. And I had a 97% match with consultative of selling. And so they recruited me hard, but I went into the coaching. But then in the coaching, in my first year, I, I had a hard time selling. And I was like, what? What's going on? Like, I've got this personality profile that says I should be able to sell. And yet I'm not. And so the organization I was with, they actually, they had a professional sales coach um, who, who came out with me on a few sales calls. And it was This was bizarre. He wrote, he wrote back to head office and this will sound boastful, but it's not because it's, he was wrong. (laughs) He actually wrote back and he said, I don't get it. He says, Warren's the best sales guy you've got in the country. And I thought that is the stupidest statement I have ever heard because by definition, I am not right. Like a, a great salesperson sells and I wasn't selling enough. So he was wrong. (laughs) So again, from a learning thing, it made me dig in. Like I went, why is he saying that when the results aren't there? Um, So I started studying sales more and went out with some guys who were succeeding. And it was like one dial of the Tumblr was all I was missing. And as soon as I figured out that number, all of a sudden I got to about an 80% conversion rate. And I became the top revenue generating coach in Canada.
0: So what was the missing piece?
1: it was so I had a great question so what it was i was too nice i had this ah, thing in okay. my head yeah that people are um private about their financials and so i wasn't pressing people to find out what their numbers were but that's how you validate the investment in coaching right like i, I was great at getting their pain on the table and what their aspirations were and what their business challenges were but i had this like sensitivity around I'm like, i don't want to ask them about their numbers um, which was dumb, you know, and as soon as I sort of started asking about that, lo and behold, I'd say, so what are your sales last year? This much. What are your margins? This. You know, what does that leave you to take home about this amount? No, no one hesitated to tell me, right? And so then it became an easy conversation. So, okay, so if you do like a 5% increase in your profitability, you'll be hitting this amount. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, that's easy to do with like two things. And people like, oh, all right. <laughs> and all so, of a sudden, like the conversion rates became, became really high. Uh, so, so sales obviously
0: is so important. And, and Warren, I'm just curious, how many sales classes uh, did you find, you know, at, at college, at the university, or in law school?
1: Oh, none. I had, I, I never had any sales. training. None. Yeah. And and there's still none today. And
0: and my son is now graduating from high school in a month, and he, you know, he's going to be going uh, to the University of Utah, where I went, and I don't remember any sales classes there, and I don't know if they've implemented any. I sure hope they have. Why are so many education and institutions missing the boat on how important sales is?
1: It's that's such an interesting question. I did, I did my undergrad in business. Like I, you know, I'm, I went to business school and there wasn't a, there wasn't a class on sales. We had marketing theory and marketing strategy, but there were no sales classes. And I think it's, You know, when I I coach people on sales and teach them, I, I say sales is actually one of the most noble professions when done well because my definition of it is professionally helping someone to solve problems. And if that's your mindset, if your mindset is to go in and help someone solve a problem, what is better than that? But I think people in institutions view sales as kind of this somewhat seedy activity where you're trying to manipulate people into doing something they don't want to do. Which is which is just slimy selling that's not good selling um, and so I think the people in the academic institutions because they don't understand what sales actually is and what how important it is in the economy um, you know and, and it doesn't it doesn't in their view I think have this sort of same sort of theoretical framework that maybe marketing does or finance does it just feels like people out there are trying to persuade people so you know it's not truly an academic discipline I think is probably what's a bit behind that but I think that's flawed I think you know there's a whole lot of really deep academic um, discipline or theoretically academically inspired discipline and skills behind sale behind selling yeah
0: no it's absolutely something that's vital and for entrepreneurs to succeed like they have to understand the process of selling and and uh, recently, we had Jim Britt on uh, the show, and he was Tony Robbins' uh, initial employer and mentor and coach. And And he talked about, you know, find the problem, find the pain, find out if people want to resolve it, and then present them with the solution. And if you do that, where you're actually caring about it, but then you also bring up a good point. If you don't bring up like the where they're at now, the financials, and how they're going to benefit by working with you, then they're not going to. So... Really important points there. So what is the result that uh, that Warren Coglin and your team give business owners who are running into obstacles and walls? And how do you help them, you know, resolve those and move forward and create their dream business?
1: So there's a whole bunch in what you just asked. Like every entrepreneur has a different set of challenges. So I I don't work off a curriculum. I have a framework. I have a structure and a framework, but not a curriculum. Because it really depends on the starting point of the entrepreneur. So, what are the benefits that you know they get? Growth. I've had clients that have done eight-figure exits. I've had people who are only working two to three days a week at a seventy-five million-dollar business because they've put in a second tier of management, and a high-performance culture. People are generating seven-figure salaries. Um, people are just getting home to see their kids. You know, at a at a more reasonable time. So, there's like lots of different outcomes that people are looking for the approach that i use though is fairly consistent which is and i came to this again through learning i did not start this way when i started coaching i was pretty much like a lot of coaches i talk to the client the client tells me what their problem is i try to coach them through the problem and then we go on to the next one the weakness in that in that approach is clients often as all entrepreneurs often confuse symptoms for problems and so what you you can spend a lot of time Fixing symptoms and not problems. And so where I, what I came to was really all my clients at the beginning, I put through a strategic analysis piece. I've actually created a tool that automates the front end of the strategic planning process by asking a couple hundred questions. It automatically populates a SWOT analysis. And then because I've done it for a while, I can look at a SWOT analysis and through some pattern recognition, basically pull out what the core themes or challenges are and then say, okay, of these themes, what do you think are the priority ones? We choose that, and then we build 90-day plans and execute on the 90-day plans. And then the implementation of the 90-day plans, there's, there's coaching, and there's training, and there's consulting, and there's creative brainstorming and problem-solving. Um, And every business, though, will their strategic focus will be different, right? Sometimes people just don't have fundamentals in place. They don't have a vision. They don't have a purpose. They don't have a mission. They don't have a unique selling proposition. And so we kind of got to nail that. Sometimes, you know, one of the things that's happening right now for a lot of entrepreneurs, this is a bit It's related to what we're just talking about, but I think it's an important cautionary note. With COVID right now, Mm -hmm. here's what I'm seeing. A lot of people are really heads down. And they're really reactive even people who've come through it well they've still got a very short term kind of focus and what people a few people are starting to talk about this but i don't think enough the bank of america has forecast six and a half percent growth for the american economy in 2021 goldman sachs is saying eight percent and that's with relatively anemic growth in the first quarter which means the back end of this year is going to be nuts as far as growth 34 percent of millennials Millennial employees have said that they are going to switch employers on the other end of pandemic. There's going to be massive job switching. Finding labor is going to be a big problem. If people are not thinking right now about how they're positioning themselves as an employment brand, as a culture, as a place that people want to work and how they're going to attract people, if they're not thinking about that now, come January, it's going to get hard. And so this approach I use of starting with the the strategic approach is to say, okay, what are the weaknesses? What are the opportunities? What are the things you should be thinking about now? And how do we put a plan in place to start taking advantage of it? And that's how I'm helping people get to where they want to get to a lot faster. Because what I find most people do is they do whack-a-mole, right? They're, oh, I got this problem. I got to hit that one. Oh, this is this problem this week. I got to hit that one. And they're trying to do 23 things at a time. Nothing ever gets completed but they're exhausted and things don't change. Whereas if you can do two significant things a quarter, you'll have done eight over the course of a year. You find me five businesses that have made eight significant improvements over the course of a year. There's not that many, right? And it's because they don't do that kind of work. And so that's that's sort of the methodology I pursue. And then I combine that with a values-driven high-performance culture. And this is why, when you... If you have a really good strategy but a really weak culture, the strategy is likely not to get implemented. If you have a really great culture but not much of a strategy, you got motivated people who don't aren't really going anywhere in particular. But when you combine the two, that's like two plus two equals six. You know, there's a there's a real leverage in there when you have a clear strategy that a high performance culture buys into and is committed to. Now nah, you're cooking with gas, um, and that's. That's basically my whole coaching model in a, in a nutshell is, you know, build a high performance culture, get it clear on your strategy, execute like mad. And that's where that's the last piece where people fall down is people will draft a strategy, but then there'll be some thing that comes up and then they just sort of shunt the strategy aside and react to the matter of the moment. Whereas when you when you have a discipline and a commitment to execution, that makes all the difference in the world.
0: Outstanding great value bombs that Warren is dropping for everybody listening right now. So one question I have is what's an example of symptoms that business owners and entrepreneurs get confused about and think that that's actually the root of the problem and how can they find the root of that problem?
1: Or should they just be giving you a call? Yeah. Yeah. That's the short answer. <laughs> um, the longer answer is by asking a bunch of whys. You know, so I, we, what's an example? So an example is, and you hear it all the team, like most of the problems will distill down into three topics, right? Time, team, or money. Those are the three areas generally that are going to, you're going to surface problems. in. Team is one where people talk about, and you'll get this, why can't I get my people to do what I want them to do? Why don't they listen? And there's a real blame thing in here, right? Those team members I have, I can't, they're not willing to do what I'm asking them to do. Okay, so you're saying that the problem is the people. I'm saying the symptom is the people. Why are the people not performing? And you'll hear this a lot too. All these millennials and Gen Zs, they're terrible. You know, they don't like to work hard. Bull. I call just, that is just nonsense. I've got lots of clients who have millennial and Z employees who work their tails off? Um, there's different things you need to talk to them about, but they will work really hard. So I'll say, and I had a client once that I did this. She, she, it was, it was very uncomfortable because she was complaining about her team. And I went, okay, so, so which, which are the ones that are that are a problem? She listed three of them, so I drew them out on circles, and I said, and, and who, who hired them? And she was like, well, I did. Who trained them? Well, I did. And who manages them during the week? Well, I do. And who built the compensation plan that gets them to do what they're supposed to do? Well, I did. Hmm. And she just she goes mad at me. She goes, You're saying it's me. <laughs> Maybe. And it's that like she was the common denominator. So it's not like, you, you know, and it was just a question of, you don't have all the skills yet to do that properly. You know, like if you've got the wrong people in the positions, either you've got a recruiting problem, you've got an onboarding problem, you've got a management problem, or you've got a like a compensation slash recognition problem. And we got to dive into those to see which it is. Because it is just not the case that, People generally suck, you know, like that just can't be, because that, if, that, if that was the case, there'd be no business succeeding.
0: No question. And I find the most successful entrepreneurs always blame themselves. They're always accountable first. And that, when that comes from the top down, then the rest of the staff are, wow, if the entrepreneur founder is holding him or herself accountable, then, you know, it makes it that much more likely that the employees and the team will as well.
1: Right, but with that, right? Like, I didn't just stop with, "Well, it's you," because well, it's yeah. not just you. It's like,
0: yeah,
1: is it maybe you don't know how to recruit properly? Like, let's get right to what the issue is. And when you can get to that, then it's sales is another one, right? Oh, like, well, I'm not selling; my salespeople suck. Well, do you do sales training? Do you, you know? And so often there's something underneath what you think the problem is. And so it's really asking the, you probably heard of it, like the seven whys. That's a structured way of doing it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do it that structured, be just for any problem you have to ask why seven times. And if you do that, you'll get closer to what the real problem is. Absolutely.
0: Now you mentioned some clients that you've helped get their business into a position where they could exit. We're talking eight figure exits, which is a dream for a lot of entrepreneurs out there. What are some of the keys to building an exitable type business where you could have that big, you know, liquid capital moment and and exit out?
1: There's lots of different models right so there's sometimes there's people who do strategic buys of companies and so there's without getting into like all the different models at the this is the high watermark what i always tell people i think there's three things that if you have in place will make your business more saleable so the first is a high performance culture if you have a high performance culture then you don't have to be in there doing everything all the time and if you think about it from a buyer's perspective what does a buyer want If you have two businesses that are both doing $5 million in revenue, one requires you to be in there dealing with clients and problems all the time, and the other one you only have to go in 10 hours a week, which one is more valuable? The second one, right? Let's dive. Yeah. Um, So having a high performance culture is one. Two is having a second tier of reliable management who runs that high performance culture. Now, sometimes a smaller business, if it's a smaller business, that's harder to do, but this is why I would say it's high watermark. If you can get to a second tier of management who can run the operations of the business, that again makes that business far more valuable. And then the third is having what I call a management dashboard, which is really, for lack of a better term, what are the KPIs or key performance indicators, which are predictive indicators and reactive indicators or result indicators of the business mm-hmm. that allow you to manage from afar. And a dashboard is sort of like the dashboard on a car. A light goes on, you don't know what the problem is, but you know that there is a problem that allows you to dig deeper. And if you have a good dashboard, you can be away from the business. And as long as you're getting the reports regularly, you're getting the early warning signs. Look at this our conversion rate has gone from 40% to 42 to 32%. That's interesting. You know, our, 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 um, our key ratio, you know, um, current ratio is dropped from 4 to 1 to 3 to 1. Huh, what's going on there, right? So then it just allows you to get on the phone to that second tier of management and say this is what's going on. So again, from a saleability standpoint, if I can buy a business that has a dashboard that allows me to see what's working in the business and what isn't working on a trending basis, that's super right? That makes me way more valuable. Now, the, the flip of that is if you have those three things in place, you may not want to sell the business because it's actually fun to run. A hundred percent when it can kind of
0: run itself without you having to work in it all the time and and be in the middle of fixing every problem. So you've got that high performance, you got that second tier level of management and leadership that holds people accountable, and moves things forward. And then you've got those key performance indicators that dashboard that that tells you where the problems are at uh, just like in your car and just just ingenious so warren how can people listening you know look to work with you and and what does the process look i'm sure you don't work with everybody but how can they you know get themselves ready and how can they reach out to you and find out if they're a fit
1: so they can find me at my website warrencoglin.com, and uh, that's c-o-u-g-h-l-i-n and there's a number of tools on there too that they can look at to try to help their businesses. some of those tools will help them get ready. There's a, uh, for instance, there's a sales management, sales planning, and tracking tool right on my homepage that allows you to manage your sales and your uh, your sales people much more effectively. Um, in terms of getting ready to work with me, I, I, I don't work with everyone. Um, generally, I like to see people roughly at about seven hundred and fifty thousand in revenue up to $10, 20 million. Um, and as long as they're somewhat values driven, like I, I've had, I had a guy once, who wanted me to, to work with him and I asked him about, you know, his life and his business and through the conversation, he basically came out that he said, "Ah, eh, if I die, I don't care if my wife gets anything. And I was like, I'm out <laughs> like that. There's certain values that I just, you know. I'm not interested in in participating in. But generally, if if people are growth-oriented, they're willing to take feedback. And that's, candidly, that's one of the reasons I often don't work with startups. A lot of young startups, they haven't had the kicks in the teeth that I talked about earlier, so they think they know more than they do, and they often aren't willing to take advice. Mm-hmm. So I've had a number of times where i spoke, you know, I'll say, well, what about this? Oh, we're all over that. We're all over that. I'm going, no, you're not. <laughs> You're really not all over that, um, but they think they are just because they haven't had the experience yet. So I like to I like to see people have been in business for at least a couple of years so that they know that there's some things that they don't know. Um, and then what I do is I just I sit down with people for basically an hour to ask them a bunch of questions. I have them fill out a little questionnaire at the, before that to help me focus in. And I'm the interesting thing is. While I have a high conversion rate, I don't actually sell. Um, I just talk to people, and if I can't help someone, I will tell them. And if I can help them, I'll say how. And if that seems to fit with what they're looking to achieve, then we wind up working together.
0: Good stuff, guys. So if you're listening, again, that's Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N, and then Coughlin, C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N.com. He does have some amazing tools right there on the website, Cool Tools for Entrepreneurs. Check out those resources. And if you're in that, uh, that uh, neighborhood where you're doing $750,000 a year in sales, you've been in business for a couple of years, most importantly, you're coachable. Like even The most successful entrepreneurs are always learning. They know that they don't know everything, and that's why they've got great professionals and experts like Warren in their corner to help them grow, to help them get to an eight-figure exit, or just that great lifestyle, because I know there are so many entrepreneurs, I've certainly been there, where you're working so hard, and you feel like if you're not in there 60, 70, 80 hours a week, that the Hmm. business is going to fall apart, and that's where a guy like Warren can come in and really help you out.
1: Thank you very much. That's, that's very true. I actually just was interviewed yesterday by a former CEO and his whole thing, he's trying to help other entrepreneurs. And he said, I wish I had a coach when I'd started. It would have made things so much easier.
0: You can do the school of hard knocks or you can have someone who's already got the experience help you avoid those. Warren, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an amazing episode that people will be listening to for a long time. Again, guys, go to warrencoglin.com. Take advantage of the cool tools and put an expert on your side, an advocate to help you grow and scale your business. Thanks so much.